innovative Often duplicated With enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged In your trachea Goodness gracious bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the wait is up Fight, WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. It feels so good to be back in studio here in the center of the known world. We are coming to you live from Hillsboro, North Carolina. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast. I'm here in the studio with Jake Whitfield, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, owner operator of Hoist Gracie Jiu Jitsu Goldsboro, North Carolina, and previous podcast guest. We had such great comments about Jake's first appearance on our show, where we talked to him a lot about his training background, history, stuff like that, and his new school. We really wanted to get Jake back in studio, do something a lot more fun than a simple phone call, and we'll do a little bit deeper dive into some of the topics that Jake is most passionate about. Uh, Jake's uh, got a voluminous knowledge of jiu-jitsu history, of MMA history, Valley Tudo fighting, so we're going to talk about a lot of that in addition to some of the stuff. Uh, about his school, about his training background, and about the scene here in North Carolina. Before we get into that, and I want to spend most of the hour talking to Jake, I just want to start with an explanatory note, uh, which is you can always get at us on Facebook at Cageside Radio. You can hit us up on Twitter at Cageside WHUP, Cageside Whoop. Our Instagram is also Cageside Whoop, and we'll be posting some images throughout the show there. Please feel free to always send us questions for the guests. Because Jake's first appearance was so well-received, we asked folks uh, from the community to to we sort of threw it out there to, to ask folks what they would most want to know from Jake. And we got some great responses, so I want to thank Tim Hufford from Chapel Hill, Dave Porter from Team Pedro Sauer for sending in some excellent questions, which hopefully we will get to in a moment. Um, so without further ado, let's get right into it with Hoist Gracie Black Belt, a successful MMA fighter, Jake Whitfield. Welcome to the studio, Jake. Thank you for having me. I'm going to have to step my grammar game up when you're starting off the podcast with voluminous. <laughs> Easy so. for you to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's all. We're starting our, our, our next uh, our next podcast is going to be a grammar podcast. It's tough to have a spelling podcast because then you have to have kids that like come in and try to spell the words and got to figure out ways to shame them. It's a lot easier <laughs> to just talk about jujitsu and martial arts history for an hour. And I, I know that um, the main risk in this interview for anyone who knows me and Jake is that we will just keep talking through the next show. Right. So, so yeah. So let, so let's get right into it. For those of you that don't know, like just a few, a little bit of a biographical note. Um, I'll start with what I know about you and ask you if I missed anything, which is just you're a Hoist Gracie black belt. I've always been Team Hoist Gracie, one of the most accomplished, I would say, MMA fighters in North Carolina history, uh, uh, and have uh, been the the owner and instru- you know been the owner and instructor of several schools, including most recently your school, which is a little over a year old, Hoist Gracie Jiu Jitsu Goldsboro in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Did I miss anything? Uh, nope. I guess that's it. I don't. I don't really know. He also enjoys long walks on the beach and is a Slytherin. That's right. Cool. Yep. Can't forget the Slytherin. No, no, absolutely not. I, you know, I, I go back and forth on whether I'm Gryffindor or Hufflepuff because I'm a little bit goofy. But po- you got to get on Potter more and just take the test, man. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's How important. Maybe we'll post those results to our Facebook. But Harry Potter lore aside, and we will get into that, I'm sure, as, as the interview <laughs> as the interview um, progresses. I want to talk to you a little bit about jujitsu history because, in addition to you know, jujitsu is a complete martial art, and you're one of the the, the loudest voices proclaiming that, uh, where which includes 
uh, striking, uh, takedowns, standing self-defense, grappling techniques, and philosophy. Right. And so we'll talk about all aspects of that, but I want to start with competition jiu-jitsu because we're coming right off the worlds, and I got to see some of the best ever uh, compete, and I'm wondering, what do you think the top five jiu-jitsu competitors of all time is are? Grammar. <laughs> yeah, grammar. Um, I think that's a really difficult question because, like a lot of other sports, there's a modern era and there's a and, and there's a earlier era. Um, there's absolutely no way for us to quantify how uh, Carlson in his prime or Joao Alberto Bajeto would have done against Mario Sperry, or it's you know Sperry his time period you can you can somewhat realistically judge because they were using virtually the same rules as today but uh but back in the 80s there were great guys that there, there's a few matches floating around like Pechotino that uh you know I, I hear were unbelievable but I've seen four matches from the guy and one of them was against Hickson so I've seen three matches of the guy <laughs> Um, sort of unfair to judge yeah. him by <laughs> facing right. Hickson. Um, and, the, and, then of, and then, of course, there's the name Hickson. Um, you know, how do you even how do you even quantify where Hickson stands against Hodger Gracie? So I think that to say that the, the best five of all time is an unfair question. I think that we can start in '93 because 93 was not only the first UFC, it was the establishment of what became IBJJF. And, uh, and so in that time period, you know, um, I think um, Hobson Moore is a guy that does not get really talked about a lot. I think Bruno Malfacini is another guy that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot. But they're so small, and their weight classes are so much... There's so many less competitors in their weight classes compared to some of the bigger weights that it still creates a, a little bit of a, a problem because Bruno had to win, what, three matches this year at Worlds. And you compare that to, you know, s some of the bigger weight divisions where they had three matches on Saturday and then three more on Sunday. Um, but I think... Uh, I think that, that Hodger Gracie, even though Buchecha has technically surpassed him in terms of absolute titles, I think that in that era, I think Hodger's probably number one. Um, Marcelo, probably number two. Um, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's just, it's such a different, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, there's there's so many amazing guys like Fabio Jorgel and Salo and uh, Jandi, of course. Um, and this, you know, and of course, like, we're not going to hold you to just, these are the top five guys written in stone. And I just want to lift up one point you made, which is this 93 cutoff. Is re it's really important to distinguish the modern era from what came before, because mm -hmm. people always talk about, like, another of the greatest of all time, Hoyler, mm -hmm. was dominating folks before there was an IBJJF. And, yeah. and the sort of a cross era guy. Yeah, and th and he's in a situation where you know Hoyler was a four time world champion. Four time world champion is still super elite. If they had the world champions championship previously, Hoyler might be a twelve time world champion. He might be a fourteen time world champion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's one of the guys like like there's there's a guy that's famous in the eighties, Sergio Pena. He's famous because he almost beat Hickson. Mm -hmm. He still got tapped, but he almost beat Hickson and it made him famous. 
Um, and Hoyler was never on that level of dominance, but you know, you can literally count over a 30 year, 25 year career, the number of people that, that beat him. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, and, and, and he's one of those that's going to get caught in the middle, like De La Hiva and Hoyler and De La Hiva had some, some amazing matches, but I think, I think De La Hiva only ever competed in two IBJJF events. I'm, I'm air quoting right now, but you can't see it. <laughs> um, because it wasn't IBJJF then, but it's the same organization. So, I mean, De La Hiva obviously is famous enough and good enough that he has a guard named after him, and he did beat Hoyler, but he has no world titles. And, and you've sort of you've sort of uh, already answered a question that I wanted to follow up on, which is to name some of the most underrated folks in history, or folks that don't get talked about enough. Folks like Hobson, folks like um, folks like Ricardo De La Hiva. I would like I would add to that list of underrated folks. Um, Margarita Fernando Margarita Pontes, yeah. who who yeah. shockingly you know, it, it's shocking how little he he's known these days for all of the the things he accomplished. Yeah, Margarita was like. Um, Jiu-Jitsu kind of, from what I can tell, goes through periods where um, the submission game becomes very, very prominent. Submission, submission, submission. And then inevitably, those people will eventually get canceled out by, I don't want to use the term stallers, but by people, the guys that would give Margarita trouble were the guys that absolutely refused to play a submission game. And would rather play points. And would rather play points. Um, so there's always a. It goes back and forth. And um, and so Margarita was. Um, there was kind of a changing of the guard there, and uh, and and I think there's two factors that that have held Margarita back in terms of being well known. And uh, he was one of my favorite guys to watch when I was a when I was a white belt and blue belt. The first thing is that he won. He was the first person to ever won the weight in the absolute at the world championship in the same year. And his prize for winning was a motorcycle, which he promptly wrecked like two months later and broke his leg and then didn't compete for a year. Um, and he never really recovered from that injury. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that he's pretty much insane from, from everything that I've seen and read. Um, and, and, you know, and, and not in the fun way. Like, like legitimately, like, you know, seems to have made everyone mad. So... Yeah. yeah, and like, and I will say two things about that. First of all, like, I, once I was in a Facebook thread talking about the best of all time, and a dude bearing the name Margarita came in and started just ripping everyone mm-hmm. in in pretty vicious terms. And I was like, "Wow, who's this guy pretending to be Margarita?" It it, it was actually him. It's actually Margarita. Yeah. And and but the second thing I want to elevate what you said about his matches being excellent to watch, particularly for white and blue belts, is that I think those matches are still super exciting, mm-hmm. and he did just. A ton of amazing things just with the hand in the collar, sit up guard, like stuff that we would consider fundamental basic jujitsu, but he would use this to beat really elite guys. Yeah, so um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, I think the first, well, somewhere in that time period, this is, you know, pre YouTube, that type of thing. Um, what they would do is on the mat.com would come out with a mixtape, one mixtape a year. It was like the AM1 mixtape of jujitsu. And uh, they came out with one when I was a white belt called Matt Burn. And it had a match on it that is my favorite match of all time, gi match of all time, still to this day, 
which was the uh, the final the the weight class final between Salo and Margarita in the Worlds. And Salo and Margarita were actually in the weight class final and in the absolute final that same year. And uh, and I prefer the weight class final because um, Salo maybe didn't exactly respect who Margarita was yet. And so he legitimately like went out there and like really tried to fight with Margarita. And uh, Margarita ended up tapping him with a baseball choke. And, um, and so... That, that, to this day, is still my favorite match. It was on YouTube. It got taken down. I don't know why. Or, you know, YouTube is what it is. But uh, but Salo and Margarita in, in uh, 2001 is is my favorite gi match ever. And I remember watching it as a white belt and just, like, being blown away. I'll see if I can find that and post it to our Facebook page because I think the listeners would, would really like to see it. And, you know, the Internet is a mysterious place where things pop up and, and, and are taken down and re-pop up again. Yeah. Yep. So I want to make sure we also talk about women competitors in the modern era, because, especially because one of the greatest of all time and former podcast guest Michelle Nicolini just competed at her last Worlds, took mm-hmm. silver medal, losing to one of today's best competitors, Mackenzie Dern. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering who, who in your view, are the people, the two or three, maybe five women in in the discussion for best of the modern era? Letitia. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Gabby Garcia w- was the most dominant, but it's not a fair comparison because she was... I, I mean, it's not her fault that she's built like Brock Lesnar, but she is. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so I, I automatically disqualify Gabby from the discussion, even though she's she did so many amazing things, because it's just not a it's not a fair comparison. I always wanted to see Gabby against. There's a I can't I'm sorry I don't know her name, but there was a super heavyweight female judoka from Cuba that was multiple multiple time world champion, and uh, and I wanted to see Gabby against against that girl in like a Metamorphosis type match. I wanted to see what Gabby did against another 240 pound elite athlete female mm-hmm. um and it never happened but i think i think Letitia and uh i think Letitia is is my opinion the most accomplished female competitor athlete and coach and i think that kira gracie has to be um you know unfortunately in in female athletics there has to be a uh, a top level female competitor that also happens to be very attractive to captivate the average person's attention and that's what Kira did because before Kira like before Kira like purple brown black were all together at the worlds mm-hmm. for females and uh, nobody paid any attention to it um, Lekka Vieira was you know she was awesome I was going to mention Lake Vieira, who yeah. is definitely in the conversation, yeah. best ever. Yeah, but nobody nobody watched, nobody paid attention, because it was it was before. Um, there's a little crossover there, but Kira helped um, mm-hmm. helped make help make it mainstream, and she was very good too. Mm-hmm. You know, so to to, elev- to to follow up on something you said about Leticia Hibero. You know, and I agree that she's the most accomplished. Com- I mean, that that would also be my choice in terms of you know won the world a dozen times and also produced a ton of 
world champion athletes, including mm-hmm. Penny Thomas, including Beatrice Mosquito, who is still among mm-hmm. the elite of the elite. And we may be talking about her as the. I mean, I think she, if she continues, mm-hmm. maybe maybe in that conversation. Yeah, she, she's worlds. she's definitely the potential um, because because she's she's still young. I mean, I don't know. She's twenty. She's in her twenties. She's in her mid twenties. You know, so she definitely could surpass everyone. Yeah, one thing I will post to the Facebook page for sure is a photo we took at the Worlds in 2011, which uh, where Kim Rice, or this was either the year Kim won the Worlds at Blue Belt or the year before Kim won the Worlds at Blue Belt, and it's Kim with Leticia Hibero, Penny Thomas, and Bia Mesquita, and Bia's still wearing braces because she's yeah. like 18 years old. Yeah. And, 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 you know, if we were to look at this, if, you know, a non-Jiu-Jitsu person were to look at this right. and be like, who is this, this child that is with these elite athletes? And, of course, she, I think she won silver that year and won the world the next year. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, a lot of people don't remember. Uh, I, I never got into this type of television, but there was that show on MTV, The Wild Boys. And they, um, they actually did a show in Brazil in which a very young Bia, who was a blue belt, I want to say she was 15 years old, choked out one of the knuckleheads, like, unconscious on MTV. <laughs> that warms the cockles of my cold, cold heart, almost as much as Leticia Hibero armbarring Steve-O from, from that Jackass show. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is I, I, which you'll love to see happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so transitioning from sport ju- from pure sport jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things, you know, most people who are aware of martial arts in any capacity know about your instructor, Hoist Gracie, changing the martial arts world in the early UFCs and, and creating essentially modern MMA or being responsible for a, a large measure of modern MMA. And so I'm wondering who you think, and you know, you can certainly list Hoist because I think you have to, but, but that's sort of taken as a given. I'm wondering who you think the best representatives of jiu-jitsu in MMA from the first UFC on have been? So that that was that was a better question because you said from the first UFC on, um, because it helps narrow it down a lot. And we can talk about earlier stuff yeah. too because I would love to talk about that with you with the Valetudo days. Yeah, um, I think that uh, you know I'm 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 heavily biased by this because Marilla Bustamante is my my personal idol in jujitsu, and um, and I think that I think that his jujitsu is the most. Um, Efficient in modern MMA. Um, Minotaur Nogueira, obviously, you know he, he's in he's in a situation where if there was no Fedor, then Minotaur Nogueira would be the best heavyweight ever. But there was Fedor. Um, Verdum, occasionally, most not occasionally. That's not fair. Verdum, most of the time, has incredibly efficient and effective jujitsu in MMA. Um, other times he, you know, charges after people with his chin up or flops on his back needlessly. Um, but most of the time he's, he's a very good representative. Um, I think that Damian Maya, you know, if we talk about modern, 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 like right now modern, I think uh, Damian Maya and Jacare are both um, obviously great representatives of jiu-jitsu in general, but specifically in MMA. And uh, and Damien even more so because Jacare has become so well rounded and such a good striker, and he's a super athlete mm-hmm. um, that he he I mean he still uses his jujitsu very effectively in MMA, but he, he, he Damien uses more jujitsu than than Jacare does. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and Damien Maya also says so many thoughtful things about jujitsu and mm-hmm. the role of self-defense in it, about how it's a complete martial art, and about you know what I thought was cool is like he still has this notion of continuing to learn, going out and tapping his opponents, but not trying to hurt them so they can just go back and train the next day. Yeah, and and then you know he uh, he had the fight against Neil Magny in the UFC, and Neil Magny's not you know he's he's a good fighter. I think he was on like a seven fight win streak or something like that. And the, one of the coolest things that I've heard in the last few years in, in MMA is that after that fight, uh, Maya was actually teaching a seminar in Vegas, and Magni hit him up on Twitter and asked if he could go to the seminar. And, and, and Damien said, sure. And so I thought that was super, super cool. That's like that's the martial art part of mixed martial arts that often gets overlooked is like, you know, Damien, uh, he has a lot to teach anyone. And it was really cool to hear a former opponent actually embrace that and say, man, I want to learn from you and him actually be willing to give it and willing to do it. You know, I thought that was super cool. I agree. I think it speaks very well of both guys. And as you say, that's sort of the martial arts ethos that I think either gets lost or maybe just isn't as present as it should be. And like, and I, I want to give a brief shout out to David Porter, brown belt under Pedro Sauer, who has a, a very similar attitude of where if he, you know, where he, he is... Uh, one of those dudes that's achieved a certain level of proficiency and has a very high level of technique, but is open-minded to learning from other folks, including mm-hmm. those that tap him, and is, and is very open to teaching you when he taps you, what he tapped you with, how to counter it, right? So that technique and learning continues to evolve. So I, I'm torn about the so. I want to continue to explore MMA with you a bit in that or actually let's let's explore pre MMA you know because there is the the first UFC which changed everything mm-hmm. but a long time before that there was Valetudo and I I know that we get into sort of the similar modern era problem right at, with evaluating because time limits come into the game rules change such like that but I'm wondering who you would cite as some of the greatest Valetudo fighters of all time in the 1950s there was there was two people, and uh, and I've um, this, the two people were were Carlson Gracie and Joao Alberto Bajeta, and there was a TV series in Brazil called Heroes of the Ring. Every Friday night, it was a live Valley Tudo show, and you know I, I don't know that this is the exact number, but reportedly Joao Alberto Bajeta fought every Friday night for an entire year undefeated on TV in Valetudo fights. And the show eventually got canceled partially because in one of Joao Alberto's fights, he, he evidently badly broke a guy's arm on TV, and the, and the, that's when the censors you know, stepped in. Um, I think Joao Alberto Bajeto is like the most... Um, I, I don't want to say underrated because he's not even underrated. He's just unknown. People just don't know who he is. Um, I think that's a very important distinction, and yeah. I want I, you know I just want to break in and say that because he's one of those guys that if you talk to people that follow the history of Valetudo fighting, they know him and they know all about how awesome he was, but virtually no one else. Like it's not one of those names that you hear if you're if you're a casual. Yeah, and uh, and Grandmaster Pedro Valente, um, who just passed away, you know, a week or so ago. You know, he he talked extensively in the closed door black belt um, testing training down in Miami about he was he got to watch Carlson and Joao Alberto train together and uh, and he got to take classes from both of them with Grandmaster Elio supervising the training 
And, um, you know, and obviously he's going to be heavily biased because you're, you're always, you know, t- to someone of, of our generation, Michael Jordan is always going to be the best basketball player ever. doesn't matter who does what else. Michael Jordan's always going to be the best. So he's heavily biased, obviously, towards that era. But um, but but I think that those two were at the kind of the golden age of Valley Tudo, where they were actually fighting consistently, and it wasn't the modern era, but they were fighting consistently against people that actually understood what the what the score was. Everybody they actually knew the rules and they understood what those rules meant. They knew what jujitsu was and what they were going to be trying to do. And, uh, and, you know, you can see the Valdemar Santana and uh, Carlson Valetudo fight one of them on YouTube. And it's not the complete fight. But, and it's not modern. You know, there's no gloves. You know, but they're doing a whole lot of stuff in 1954, 5, whatever it was, that, that, you know, stacks up right along with what we're seeing in MMA today. Um you know, and that was, and so, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a. There was a there was a lull, in the '60s and in the '70s where Valley Tudo was banned in Brazil, and you know, and so they they still had some challenge matches here and there. But um, in the '50s, they were legitimately doing this on a regular basis. Um, and then in the 80s, you started to have a lot of challenge matches because of the Luta Livre War, the Jiu-Jitsu Luta Livre War down in, 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 uh, in Rio. And um, and a little bit of that carried over into some of the, the early MMA guys that were very successful, including, you know, Henzo and uh, Murillo fought on that, Murillo Bustamante, Fabio Gergel, Valige, um, but I think the golden age for Valley Tudo was in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, like, now, were a lot of those fights no time limit fights? No. They, 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 they had time limits? Yeah, they, they had time limits. Um, the, really, Grandmaster Elio was the one, well, Carlos Gracie Sr., who managed Grandmaster Elio, was the one that was very insistent on no time limit. Um. And uh, but like a, a great deal of Carlson's fights had time limits. Um, there's there's a there's a, a controversial fight um, uh, against Euclides Pereira where Carlson Gracie, depending on which story you read and who was there, either had a draw or lost a decision against a guy. Um, where su- supposedly it was you know whatever it was two ten minute rounds or whatever the the thing was. And uh, the non-jiu-jitsu people or the people that want to denigrate the name of the Gracie family will insist that Carlson Gracie lost the decision. And uh, the the Gracies have always claimed that there was not supposed to be any judges. Carlson was fighting in the other guy's hometown. And then when the other guy made it the distance, they just kind of raised his hand and said he won. Um, and I think, I think that's a very plausible story. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not the, uh, the would wouldn't be the most unusual thing that happened in during fighting of that. No, era. it happened in uh, it happened. You need to get Brandon Garner on the show and ask him about fighting in Kazakhstan, because it actually happened to Brandon in Kazakhstan. 
I, I think the I think every listener agrees that we need to get Brandon Garner on the show, and so uh, so we, we hopefully we can start a movement to get Brandon Garner on the show because I would love talking to him not just about that but other other stuff as well. We yeah. should get you guys in the studio at the same time. That'd be awesome. So as much as I would like to just talk about jujitsu and Valetudo history for the whole hour, I know that uh, some of our listeners want to talk more about North Carolina, and so I'm going to ask you a related question, which is you know we talked about the underrated or less known competitors nationally, globally. I'm wondering, and this is a two-part question, who do you think the most underrated folks in North Carolina have been in terms of jiu-jitsu, both since you started training, and who do you think the most underrated f- people are right now, like that have great jiu-jitsu, but people don't know how good their jiu-jitsu is, in, in your estimation? Well, the the non-competitors are all... The, 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 the kind of interesting thing about jiu-jitsu is that up until fairly recently, because jiu-jitsu... The sport of jiu-jitsu as an organized, like, real sport has grown so much in the last seven or eight years. Um, But it was always a realistic thing to worry about back in the day that in the blue belt or the purple belt division, because there were no brown belts and black belts, that some guy that trained at some school that just didn't compete was going to show up and, and just beat everybody up. And it happened sometimes. Um, and so uh, the guys that didn't compete regularly, you know, you just didn't get to know them. Um, I think that, uh, that's, that skill-wise, someone that gets just almost no credit, that doesn't get talked about at all, that always gave me a lot of trouble, was Jeremy Owens. Um, Jeremy and I were literally two out of three blue belts in Wilmington at, at the time we were training together. Like, there was us two and Lemaine Williams. And we were the only three blue belts, like, not just Wilmington, like, on the coast. Like, like I mean, we were we were alone, alone. And uh, and Jeremy always gave me a lot of trouble. And uh, and he's he's been a black belt for a good long time now, but he's he's never competed as a black belt because he's got so many other things going on. Um, I think that that Greg Thompson is the enigma that so he's like the Yeti, like so few people have actually seen him and met him. And I haven't trained with Greg in ten plus years, but man, Greg was so good. Um, you know, and all the all the Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in North Carolina came from Greg. Greg is sort of like the Yeti in numerous ways, and, le- and, and, and one of which is we've always wanted, and I put out a call through mutual friends to try to get him to come on the show because, you know, he started Team Rock and, you know, has so many interesting things. Is one of the, He is one of the original 12 black belts. Five. The, the top the original five. So the, the uh, you know, we, we always hear the Dirty Dozen, and Greg's one of the, the first of those. And so, so I think he'd be a fascinating person to get on the show. And everybody speaks of his abilities uh, very highly as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a um, Greg is a, a super athlete, uh, super duper duper strong. Um, not to take anything away from his technique because he was a black belt. You know, he is a black belt. He was he was one of the first five guys that Hoist ever gave a black belt to. So I mean, obviously he's technical, but super duper strong and. Um, and he has a um, a special type of intelligence that that's that's very related to jujitsu. He's he's a problem solver and he's an idea guy. 
you know, and like any idea guy, not all ideas are great, but he had some good ones, and uh, and he, and he had the ability to look at a situation on the mat and figure it out. Um, trying to think about like underrated people, it's it's hard to talk about underrated people because they're underrated. It's, you know, the competitors get noticed and the non-competitors don't. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. Like a lot of times, you know, people when they're assessing who is quote good unquote, they'll look at okay who's meddling mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like I think anybody that's trained at any of the gyms around here knows that there are some monsters that just don't show up to tournaments. Yeah, and uh, and so it's tough. And that's why I thought I'd get your perspective on that. And if you think of some other names we, that that are around today, I'd certainly be interested in hearing those. Um, I do want to talk to you a little bit about about being an instructor and sort of your you know you're somebody that's competed at all your life in just about everything. But, you know, you're, it, it seems like you're focusing a lot on teaching now. And I'm wondering, Tim Hufford sent in a question, as an instructor, how do you allow for your own personal training and improvement? Do you do drilling outside of times that you teach? How do you account for continuing to develop your own skills and learn while you're trying to teach others? I, uh, I don't do a lot of drilling anymore. Um, when I was... Um, well, because I teach, I teach at least three hours a day group classes, and usually two to four, sometimes more hours a day of private classes. So I'm already on the mat for five to eight, nine hours a day anyway. So I don't really have time to drill. Um, the for me, I just think about jujitsu all the time. So maybe that helps me. I don't know. Um, when I roll, though, I, I tend to – I used to, when I was like a brown belt, purple belt, brown belt, I used to do a lot of like, okay, this is triangle week. I'm going to triangle everyone all week long. And by the end of the week, everybody knows it's triangle week, even if you don't tell them. And so it gets pretty hard. Um, but do, you, do you triangle everybody who stack passes you? <laughs> that's a loaded question right there, isn't it? <laughs> it's more an inside joke continue yeah. to talk about your own training and development please um but uh now um what i try to do more when i'm rolling now is i try to try to be very um attentive to what the other person's doing and i i actually when i roll um I get my guard passed every single roll. I get mounted every single time that I roll. Um, it, it, you know, maybe one day a week I'll roll a little bit more serious. But what I try to do is every time I roll with somebody, especially somebody new, I want to feel what they're going to do. And um, so, like, I had a guy that was training with me uh for a little while and then he went and trained to another school and he actually just came to our sparring session yesterday and uh and so that that was that was the first thing that i did with him was you know let him dictate the role you know he pulled guard he started doing his guard series you know let him do whatever he wanted to do because that's what i was really interested in is what has he learned at this other school what are they teaching him what's he doing now and so um i'm past the point of of really concerning myself with who I who I tap or don't tap um you know I don't have any problem with a white belt blue belt in anybody tapping me 
you know, if if they have a if especially if they execute a, a correct technique, then I I let myself get tapped all the time, and I just I just focus on how are they getting there, what are they doing that's that's making this effective, and uh, and so that's that's at this point that's that's the main thing I'm doing to learn at this point. As an instructor, you're really focused on self defense. And, you know, you teach, you, you know, obviously you've produced successful competitors too, but like rooted in those fundamentals. Well, some of our listeners were wondering, how do you handle it when dudes that want to be just pure sport jujitsu dudes show up and want to train with you? Have you ever, like, is that, is that a thing where you're like, we're going to have to adjust your mode of training? Have you ever actually turned down somebody that wanted to come train with you? Um, it, uh, if if I have a visitor, like like during Christmas time, I had a couple of visitors from a couple of different schools, you know, more competitive schools. So if somebody comes in and they visit, it doesn't make any difference to me. You know, they can do whatever. You know, like if if, if I have somebody come in, and they're interested in self defense, like let's say somebody trains at Gracie Baja, and they come up to me and they kind of say, "Hey, you know, we don't really do too much self defense. I'd like to learn some. Then I'll teach some." Um, or I'll just teach whatever's in the normal class. But if I have a visitor from Alliance or from Gracie Baja or whatever, and they, um, and, and, and I'm more apt to kind of cater to them a little bit because they're visiting. But my fundamentals program, which is the, the Hoist Gracie fundamentals program, which it's a, they have a, we have a letter, um, the Valente brothers do a letter where, Grandmaster Alio actually approved the fundamentals program, stating this is the fundamentals program that I endorse. Here's a hint. It's not Gracie Combatives. <laughs> um, in my fundamentals program, we, we, we do usually four techniques a class. Usually at least two of them are standing up. Might be a takedown, might be a striking technique, might be a self-defense technique. And that's the fundamentals. And so if somebody decides they want to come to my school and they don't want to do the fundamentals, you can do that. You'll just be a no-stripe white belt forever. You know, and, if, and, and there's some people that are okay with that. You know, if, if you want to come in, if, if you want to show up for, for, for no-gi grappling techniques class, I don't care anything about a gi. I don't care about self-defense. I, I just want to roll around no-gi. Okay. I mean, you're going to pay the same price as if you train five days a week. You know, and you're going to get beat up by the people that train the other classes. But if that's what you want to do, it's okay. So you've operated several different training centers. And I'm wondering, like, because jiu-jitsu has grown both as an art and as a sport, lately you have more schools opening than ever. And it seems like these days everybody thinks they can start a school or a gym. I'm wondering what what do you think people should know before they try to take that step? What what should they do before they take that step? And is there anything that you wish you'd known before you started teaching? Um, the thing that I wish that I'd I'd been a little bit more aware of is um is not so much about teaching, it's about the the business is that like it's it's really easy to look at a AOJ or at um, Henzo's Academy or wherever it is, and they've got this great big amazing facility, and it's and uh, and I I got caught up in a little bit trying to do too much, you know. So I I think starting small is the biggest thing, is 
as far as teaching, you know, when you start teaching, understand that you're that if you do it right, you're going to teach the same 15 moves for six months straight. Um, now, you know, you can do it whatever way you want. Some people might not want to teach 15 moves for six months straight. So they might teach, you know, a new class every day for six months straight. And they can do that if they want. But to develop a proper foundation in your students, if all your students are new, well, you're going to be doing escape the mount, escape the side control, maintain the mount, pass the guard. You know, you're going to do that lesson over and over and over and over and over again, um, which is really how I was taught anyway. Um, my two main instructors in terms of class time were, were, were uh, Spencer and Greg, and they only taught about eight to ten lessons each. So we got those same eight to ten lessons from, you know, for a total of 16 to 20, whatever it is. Um, we got those same lessons for, like, years. But we're really good at those things to this day. And those things are important, man. I mean, yeah. you know, if you can't get out of mount. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. You're going to have a bad time. Right. So you're also a father, and you have you have two girls and a boy. And so when you and I started training, when I started training with you, I would come to your barn and we did often really hard training with inches of sweat on the floor, you know, really, really, really fun, but really, really difficult training. I'm wondering as your kids grow up, like how do you, at what point do you start training really hard with people? And are you going to train as hard with, like, and, and you know, you've had other teenagers that you've trained with, like I'm thinking of, of, of Cole who took a year off or something, <laughs> uh, which is too bad because he was getting really good. Yeah. Uh, but, but. How do you, when you're teaching, how how, what's the difference between teaching young people and teaching adults? And when Ellie grows up, are you gonna are you gonna train as hard with her as you did with me and Travis and Stephen and Matt and 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 those adult guys? Well, the, the first thing is that for my kids, my personal children, is that you know, jujitsu is the most like it's just an everyday part of life. Like it, it's actually kind of strange to them meeting people that don't train jujitsu or don't know what jujitsu is you know so it's like every day you brush your teeth you do jujitsu it's just that's just what we do um so for me i i don't uh i don't put a lot of pressure with um ellie's my oldest she's seven and my kids my fundamental kids classes on monday wednesday friday and I make her do the Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. And it's not really making her because she very rarely wants to do anything else. But she just does the regular kids class. Uh, occasionally she'll want to do a private class on the weekends, something special. Um, she was doing I have an advanced kids class on Tuesday, Thursday, and she did it for a little while. But then she said, I don't want to do advanced class anymore. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. We have to do fundamentals. Reagan's five. She's about to be six in a few months. So she trains twice a week. She does Monday and Friday. Um, and sometimes, you know, because she's five, so sometimes she's, I don't want to do jujitsu today. Sorry, sweetie, it's Friday. You do jujitsu on Friday. Um, and, and so at least my kids' program at my school goes from six to 12. They're going to do that at least until they're 12. When we get to 12, we'll have to see where we're at. Um, I'm hoping that they're going to continue to want to be involved. Um, 
but but you know it, it it's hard to say in five six seven years where you know where that's going to be at um but for me i don't have a separate teens class i know a lot of places have teens classes and that's cool but i think that the what i found is that teenagers benefit a lot from being surrounded by grown folks so like i have a 14 year old at my school that is unbelievable like he you know he's 14 years old and he is you know legitimately competitive with purple belts rolling he is sparring with pro mma guys and holding his own at 14 and um well that's terrifying it, it is he's yeah he's I, I i tell everybody i tell i mean like somebody comes in i say look if you could tap him now you better tap him now because mm-hmm. when he's 16 nobody's going to when he's when he's 18 he's going to be tapping me for sure the kids are coming for us all, man. Sometimes I joke about quitting jujitsu when I'm 45 because orange belts are going to be tapping me, and I'll never quit jujitsu. But, no, but, uh, but, but the kids are getting good. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so so I with the kids, the the and and it's a difference where with the 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 kids class, my kids kids, my six to twelve year old class. Um, we we have a structure that every class follows basically the same structure, and we just. You know, we do a little bit different warm-up each class, but it's the same basic warm-up. We do a different technique each class. We do different types of rolling. It's not always just free rolling. Um, and then we have a couple different games that we do. So we keep it. It's it's not exactly the same class every time, but the same structure. And um, and that was very helpful. And and I read a I read an article that I I, that I stole something from that was tremendous. And it was an article about the Russian wrestling system because the Russians consistently produce world-class wrestlers that win, you know, 10, 10 world championships. And, uh, and it was talking about how bef- before the Russian wrestling practice, the kids have to stand in line before the practice and just stand. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. So what I do is that when my kids' class comes in, I, the kids usually start getting there, you know, quarter till five. Kids' class five o'clock. From whenever they get there up until three or four minutes before class, I just let them do whatever they want, as long as they're being relatively safe, you know. But they run and tackle each other and jump and do cartwheels and flip and, and hey, I think it's great because I think kids today don't get enough unstructured playtime. But then at the three or four minute before class mark, I, I tell, all right, on the line. And the kids have to stand in line with no talking, fix your gi, stand there for the last three or four minutes before class. And it gives them a chance to mentally reset. And then we start class. And um, every class at the end of class, we play a game. So they know that when they first come in, we're going to get to play and everything, and then we're going to have this little pause, and then we're going to be serious, and then we're going to finish with a game. And so because they know that they're going to get that the, that the bookends are going to be playtime, they can be serious in the middle. Um, you know, I, I like some people will say, you know, well, well, kids' training should be all about fun. Mm, no. There should be fun in it. They should not hate going to class, but they need to understand that there's a, there's certain things that are that are very important. 
um, you know, teaching a eight-year-old how to execute a rear naked choke is morally and legally kind of, you know, pretty serious, Mm -hmm. you know, and we talk about when are you allowed and not allowed to use this technique. Um, And I don't want my kids thinking that choking someone is a joke. It's not. It's not playtime. When you choke somebody, you need to understand what you're doing to them and that, that you need to be ready if they, as soon as they tap, you have to let go, you know. So that's the way I structure my kids' program. So I would like to ask this question about people that have extensive experience competing themselves and teaching other people and training them for competition. Losing is terrible. Um, but I'm always curious to ask, and because you have a lot of guys that you've trained with for years, Travis, Steven, you know, that, that, that you're close to, is it harder for you to lose a competition yourself or to watch someone that you care about, that you train with, lose? It depends on the situation. So um, I'm going to use an example. Uh, a few years ago, Steven fought C.J. Murdoch at Bull City Brawl. And Steven and C.J. went out there and just tore each other apart for the whole fight. I mean, and the fight could have gone either way, um, you know, going, you know, it, it, it ended up being in the fourth round, uh, CJ hit Steven with a knee and, and Steven went down and it was TKO. That was terrible. Like that was, you know, that was just, just, just terrible to see because Steven was out there doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing, do, you know, going after it, you know, and there were some mistakes cause there's always mistakes. But he was giving it everything he had, and he got beat. Congratulations to CJ. You know, that was a great fight for him. I congratulated him after the fight. And that was really hard to watch. But I am absolutely not above. If, if, I'm at, if I've been at a tournament and one of my students is out there competing, and I'm coaching them, and I'm telling them, get your posture, you know, oh, you know calm down, breathe, whatever, I'm giving them that advice. If they're just flat out not listening to me, I'll walk away because that's on them. If, if I'm coaching you and I'm telling you to do A, B, and C, and you're not even attempting to do them, yeah, you don't need me there. Whatever. That's on you. So that, doesn't, that, that bothers me from the perspective of my students not listening to me. But when my student doesn't listen to me, I'm happy to see them lose because maybe they wouldn't have lost if they listened to me. This brings up, I don't want to cite the specific instance of this example, but I recall an example of watching you coach one of your students and who was getting his face smashed by somebody from another local school, and you actually shouted, yeah, go ahead and smash his face. Yeah. And is that an example of what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's it, that's it exactly. Yeah, and I know which one match you're talking about. Yeah, I imagine. Um, yeah, no, I mean, um, if, if somebody... Somebody sets a goal for themselves, and they do everything that they can to reach that goal, and they fall short. That's heartbreaking. You know, I hate to see that. When someone doesn't do everything they can to give themselves the best chance to win, yeah, it's okay. This actually dovetails with a question that, that we got from a listener, which is, in, in a jujitsu context... What would you say the best way to earn your respect is? Person, my personal respect? Your personal respect in a jiu-jitsu context. It's kind of I don't I don't I don't I don't actually know how to how to how to 
answer that question. Makes it a good question. Yeah. Um, I'm big on gameness. I'm big on, on guys that will, um, even if they are probably going to lose, um, or maybe they should lose, they still compete like they're going to win. Um, bagels is the example of that right now. It used to be me. Now it's bagels. Um, you know, where bagels goes out there, and it doesn't matter who he's competing against, including me, <laughs> he goes out there and tries to give it everything that he can to win and, and, and believes in himself, even when he has no reason to. Yeah, my respect. Um, you know, the ways to, to lose my respect are a little easier to name, you know. Name away. Because because that's, I mean, any any type of being disrespectful to your opponent or, or, or disrespectful to the art of jiu-jitsu is immediately going to lose my respect. Um, you know, and it's not a technical thing. There's different types of jiu-jitsu, different styles of jiu-jitsu, and I'm open to everyone doing whatever type of jiu-jitsu they want to pursue. So seeing someone Barambolo does not make me lose respect for them. Thank you. Seeing someone Barambolo while advertising self-defense, you know, or no, no, no. Seeing someone teach Barambolo while advertising self-defense, I have an issue with, you know. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I want to support anyone that promotes jujitsu in a positive way. You know, regardless of what, you know, even if it's not the jiu-jitsu that I teach or that I believe in, if they promote it in a way that, that um, that's going to that's gonna, uh, have have a positive impact on the community, then, I, then I'm in favor of it. To get back to gameness, because this is something that I, that I actually really aspire to. But, you know, for some of the examples that you cited, from some of the examples that you cited, like going out there, believing in yourself, competing as hard as you can. Jason Culbreth actually told, when I was having a conversation with Jason Culbreth about your career in jiu-jitsu and fighting, he actually said, Jake beat a lot of guys that he, quote, shouldn't have beat, unquote, just because he went out there and didn't believe that he could lose. Right. And I, th I think that kind of mental toughness is something that, that is something we should all aspire to as competitors. Yeah, and I think that uh, that my biggest virtue as, a, as an instructor is not a technical virtue. Um, you know, I love teaching, and I'd be happy to, to teach anybody, and I'm open for seminars, and if you want to do a seminar, please let me know because I'd love to do it, and I'm poor. But my greatest virtue is the, the mental programming that I'm able to do day in and day out with the people that I have hands-on contact with of making them feel like they can beat anyone, making them feel like they can, you know, they can do things that they really can't do, but they don't need to know that. And that's what I try to do. In just a few minutes we have left, I want to ask at least one serious question, at least one comical question. So let me start with the comical question, which we got from Dave Porter, which is, what was going through your mind when you saw Harold Hubbard come out in a singlet, Dave Porter come out in a luchador mask, and uh, during when you were refing at the Concussion Cast Carnival, and you would watch John Bagels Telford ref all these matches where people took it totally serious, played it totally straight, and suddenly you've got a guy in a wrestling singlet and, uh, and a luchador mask. Uh, I thought that I thought that Bagels had looked at the the card and it set me up. I thought Bagels, you know, I, I think that I was getting punked there or something. Um, you know, that was uh, 
I can't say I've ever refereed a match with a loose door mask in it. So that's that was a first. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Are we at the point where you can laugh about that? Yeah, now? I know. I mean, it's it was, you know, it is. I mean, because the thing is, it wasn't it wasn't the world's. You know what I mean? It was it was the concussion cast carnival in the park. You know, it's all good. I personally wouldn't wear a luchador mask into the ring. Um, I think that surprises everyone. Well, you know, but I would quote Ric Flair. <laughs> no, see, everyone should be able to quote Ric Flair. That's like, right. I mean, they should teach Ric Flair in school along with the American Revolution. And, don't uh, they? Yeah, they should. They should. I don't know. I haven't, it's been a long time since I've been in school. I'm very old. So the serious question that I want to ask. So Jake is available for seminars, and somebody that has, you know, trained with Jake a lot, taught, taken a lot of his classes, taken a lot of privates with Jake, I can attest that these are some of the most effective, tightly constructed, fundamental jujitsu learning experiences that I personally have had. And so I would like for you to describe what you think folks could expect from a Jake Whitfield seminar, and then perhaps you could give folks uh, contact information for how they could get a hold of you. Yeah, um... You know what? What you said is correct. Is is fundamental, basic jujitsu. Um, I'm 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 aware of all the all the fancy new stuff. I just don't I just don't do most of it. Um, but what I try to do when I teach is I try to do something that that everyone from white belt to black belt is going to be able to use and use immediately. And there's a certain side of jujitsu um, that I think is being lost or overlooked of of really perfecting the basics and of really fine-tuning things to make them as efficient as possible which I'm still trying to do myself and so that's what I try to pass on in my seminars you're if, if you're interested in let me bring somebody in that's going to teach some really cool stuff then I'm probably not the seminar you want to have if you want somebody to come in and and give you something that hopefully you'll be able to apply the next day when you train and you'll be able to continue to apply then that's what i would try to do you know and anybody that wants to wants to have seminars can hit me up on facebook or um you can email me at gracygoldsboro at gmail.com um and those would probably be the two best ways to to get a hold of me and i would also like to say just in the in the minute that we have left that um that uh you, you might not describe the jiu-jitsu you teach as the cool jiu-jitsu, but I think useful things are cool. <laughs> and you've, you've taught a lot of really useful things yeah. in the classes I've taken from let, you. Let me throw in a story here right at the end. So before my very first high school wrestling match, my wrestling coach got everybody in the wrestling room. You know, we're all getting warmed up. We're all getting ready. And he told us, he said, okay, guys, remember, we want to go out there and we want to have fun. And winning's a lot more fun than losing. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, it made sense to me. I think that's a great way to end the show and sums up your philosophy, my philosophy, and a philosophy I wish more folks had. Guys, Jake Whitfield is a Hoist Gracie black belt, owner of Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Goldsboro, North Carolina. If you're interested in a seminar, you can get at him at GracieGoldsboro at gmail.com or he's on Facebook at Jacob Whitfield. Jake, thanks so much for taking the time and driving out to, to be with us today. All right, thank you for having me. Folks, that is our show for this week, the Cage Side Concussion Cast. You can always check us out on Facebook at Cage Side Radio, Twitter at Cage Side Whoop. You can l- listen to the show on whoopfm.org, and you can download us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. It's always a great time doing the show, and I want to thank you all once again for listening. We're going to have some exciting announcements soon. But as always, I am Jeff Shaw, and it, it was wonderful to hang out with you all. So thanks for spending your Sunday with us. Woo! <laughs>